It is wonderful to be here at University Baptist Church in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And I can say it is wonderful to be here once again. And uh, I did have the honor many years ago of being here as a part of the dedication series for this very sanctuary and uh, worship center. And it's an honor to be here once again. Dr. H.D. McCarty, who was pastor here at that time, was also a member of the Board of Trustees at Southern Seminary. And there's the generosity of this church to share him in that role. And uh, I had the opportunity to be here and to see what the Lord was doing in this church then. And it is a great signal honor to be here to see what the Lord is doing in this church now. And I exult in, in what I get to see. Mary and I are both thrilled to be here. Mary had the great honor of speaking to the Women's Conference. And uh, I have the opportunity of, of being with you and, uh, and being with uh, members of, of this church just over the last couple of days, uh, hearing what the Lord is doing seeing with my own eyes what the Lord is doing. When I first met Brad Wheeler, he was a rising young executive with Merrill Lynch. This is what God will do to you. <laughs> you. You think you'll know what direction your life is going, and the Lord will turn it around. And Brad and Aaron and their family, uh, we've come to know and to love them, and uh, we miss them in Louisville. And uh, the great thing is seeing how the Lord uses those whom you love in ministry, to do the most amazing things all over the world. The Lord has allowed me to live long enough, and I'm thankful that I get to see how the Lord is using those whom we have known at one stage in life for great, wonderful things for the kingdom. And uh, I pray to live long enough to see even more. I have uh, lived long enough. I've been at Southern Seminary now long enough as president, almost 30 years, that we have the, the children of those we knew as students years ago. And uh, I feel like Abraham. And that just makes me very happy. What a stewardship of being here together. Our great honor together is turning to the Word of God. And so I want to invite you to turn with me to the 21st chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be turning to a passage that is familiar to most Christians, and yet it remains as shocking as when the audience of Jesus heard Jesus speak those words 2,000 years ago. We know this, this passage is the parable of the wicked tenants, and like every parable, we dangerously reduce it to how we entitle it. It is about wicked tenants. But the wicked tenants are not the central character of this parable, as we shall see. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took the servants and beat one killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. And though they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Prince Philip died this past week. Perhaps you've heard of that. An amazing figure, not because he's so amazing in himself, but because his life is symbolically very amazing. But his life really was amazing when you consider the fact he was born in 1921 and died in 2021, just two months 
short of his 100th birthday. But there are other lives of similar time, but his life is just pretty singularly indicative of our times. When he was born in 1921, he was born a prince of Denmark and a prince of Greece. His grandfather was the king of Greece. And uh, he had aunts who were grand duchesses of Russia. That's pre-Soviet Russia. He had aunts who were grand duchesses. And yet he lived to the year 2021. His father was the king of Greece and he was later deposed and later there was, of course, the tumult that took place in Greece. His father, who had been the second-born son and, uh, and uh, obviously a prince of Greece was under a, a sentence of execution because of a war that had gone badly. And Prince Philip, along with other members of the family, were he was a very young boy at the time. He was spirited out of Greece as they were seeking to kill him. And uh, he was actually uh, you know, snuck out of the country in a load of oranges. Not the worst way to go as a, as a Floridian, I say. But nonetheless, he lived a life of enormous privilege and enormous deprivation. It's a very symbolic life. I mean, he he was alive for the 100 years, roughly, of human history that have experienced the greatest change. He was born when almost every single nation on on the planet Earth was headed by a crowned head. Most of those crowns are long gone. Why am I talking about Prince Philip? He was also known for saying almost exactly the wrong thing in almost every occasion. (laughs) He had the most awkward role probably played by anyone in world history during the last 100 years. He was basically there to make sure that the royal line continued. I tell a story about Prince Philip that has always been poignant when he was alive, but even more so now. Prince Philip did have the, the propensity to malapropisms, just saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, or to missing the point, or to be appearing to miss the point. He represented the queen sometimes at state visits. He had a state visit to what is now Zimbabwe, which is then Rhodesia. And representing the queen, he was being hosted at a state banquet. He was approached by an African waiter who asked him, Would you like the beef or the duck? Prince Philip turned to the waiter and said, in a way that we can understand in context, tell me about the duck. The waiter looked at him strangely and then said, it's like a chicken, (laughs) but it swims. Now, I dare say that there's not a better definition of a duck I have ever heard than a chicken that swims. Prince Philip wanted to know how the duck was prepared. The waiter thought he was being asked to explain the existence of a duck. (laughs) Sometimes it comes down to that. Sometimes it comes down to the fact that we need to be told what a duck is, a chicken that swims. Furthermore, we like to think that we're rational creatures who would be driven by truth and evidence to see what is plainly obvious. If the truth is presented to us, we'd like to think that we are the kind of people who would recognize the truth and respect the truth and affirm the truth and receive the truth. We'd like to think we are those kind of people. The problem is the Scripture says we are not that kind of people. As a matter of fact, the verdict given in Scripture is far stronger than we might ever imagine because not only does the Scripture say that we often miss things some of the time In Romans chapter 1, in a universal indictment of humanity, the Apostle Paul says that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We're not the people who see the truth and affirm the truth and love the truth and respect the truth. We're actually the people who deny the truth and in unrighteousness seek to suppress the truth. And that's not Paul's indictment about some people at some time. That's Paul's indictment about humanity from Adam until you, from Adam until all of us. We are not homo sapiens after all. 
naming ourselves the creature who thinks, we're often the creature who hides from the truth rather than embracing the truth. The text we have read together is indeed a parable. It's one of the parables of Jesus. About a third of the material in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is made up of parables. Jesus taught in parables so often that uh, in Mark we are told that he basically never taught without telling them a parable. Human beings sometimes have to be snuck up upon with the truth. We, we, we sometimes find that as parents, don't we? We, we sometimes find that it, it, it's, it's one thing to say two plus two equals four. It's another thing to say you may have two pieces of candy. And what's the child have to do the math? Or you're four pieces of candy. You and your sister may each have two. The, the truth has to sneak up on us. And sometimes it sneaks up on us in the form of a story. And, and Jesus told parables. And the parabolic form is associated with Jesus more than anyone else. Because even as Jesus was referred to as rabbi by almost everyone who met him, meaning teacher, he was respected even by those who did not come to faith in him, they understood that he was a teacher and a part of the compelling nature of his teaching and a part of what attracted the crowds to him wherever he taught was the fact that he used the form of the parable. And one of the things we need to know is that the parabolic form, the form of the parable is subversive. We tend as Christians to diminish the parables for what they are. We tend as Christians to think, oh, there's a parable. You know what a parable is. A parable is a story and it has a point and sometimes it's even metaphorical or it's analogical. We see this means this and that means that. We can handle the parables. These parables are very interesting. And, and yet the reality is that the parables are such that if you think you have mastered this parable, you are a fool. Because this parable is not something you get. The parable is there to get you. The parables were spoken by Jesus in such a way that there were people who left and a couple days later went, wait just a minute. I've entitled this message, Are You Talking About Us? Because by the time you get to the end of this parable, you have the chief priests and the leaders of the temple who said, you know, I just think it might be possible that he was talking about us. You think? Here in Matthew chapter 21, there is a context, of course, as is true for all the parables, and we need to notice this context, and, and in order to see this, we need to go back earlier in chapter 21, just look at verse 25, and, and let's go back to 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them. I will also ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come, from heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. By the way, there's no point being an authority in the temple if you're not an authority in the temple. There's no fun being the expert if you have to admit to everyone you don't know a thing of what you're talking about. And yet what we see in this passage here in the Gospel of Matthew, especially in chapter 21, is that the tension, and this is after the triumphal entry of Jesus, and so even as we've been thinking about Easter and Palm Sunday, this is in that period between the triumphal entry and the crucifixion of Christ. And in this time, the tension is growing ever greater. And, and G, they're confronting Jesus about his authority. And by the way, the, we, we could take months just to consider what it means that they confronted Jesus about his authority. What does authority mean here? By what right do you say these things? You speak on behalf of God. By what right? And Jesus will say, because I am his son and he sent me. But you notice Jesus doesn't even answer their question. He answers their question with the question. They can't answer his question. He knew they could not answer his question. Therefore, he will not answer their question. Which points out who actually has authority. Jesus told the parable of the two sons. And uh, it, it's also pointing at this heightened tension. But by the time we get to, to the parable of the tenants, 
and in particular, verse 33 and following, we understand that there's something climactic about to take place. The, the tension has, has reached such a point where there's going to be some clarification. This, this is, Jesus has been coming at an angle, but by the time he finishes the passage we read, there is no angularity. It is direct. The parable of the tenets as we know it is the most heightened Christology of any parable. That is to say, of all the parables of Jesus, this is the only parable in which he concludes it by saying, I am the Son of God. Deal with it. It begins with the, the context of a vineyard. I have no vineyard. I have never vineyarded. There's much of the Bible that is less direct to us than it was to those who would have heard these words the full time, the first time. I, uh, I've never been a shepherd. But so much of the New Testament is about shepherding and sheep. But it is amazing that most of us actually as Christians know about shepherding and we know about sheep more from the Bible than we do from shepherding or sheep. Similarly, we know a great deal about vineyards. In the time that we have spent together already this morning and in worship, we've heard from Isaiah chapter 5. And it was read for us in the context of worship as we considered that key text from the Old Testament and from the great prophet Isaiah. But I want us to note something about the language of Isaiah chapter 5. Even as God and His work, God and His people are described as the owner or master of a vineyard and the vineyard itself. Listen again to the language of Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. It's described as a love song. One of the things we learn from Isaiah chapter 5, and it is certainly repeated throughout Scripture, is that there is an intimacy in the relationship between the master and the vineyard that is evidently so evident to the people hearing this account that they would just take it for granted. Notice the language that is used by Isaiah. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Notice how personal is this the relationship. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard, my vineyard, not just this vineyard I own, it's me and my vineyard. What have I not done for it? This intimacy is very precious to us when we think about it. It's the intimacy between God and His people. It's the intimacy between Christ and His church. Jesus will later say, I am the vine, you are the branches. It turns out that in Christ, the intimacy is even greater than that which is told of the Old Testament here. In the Old Testament, the intimacy was between the owner of the vineyard and the vine. But now we are actually grafted by the gospel to Christ. He is the vine and we are the branches. And now we understand that the intimacy that Isaiah is talking about here in Isaiah chapter 5 is greatly eclipsed by the intimacy that Jesus will say is his accomplished work. His, the intimacy between Christ and his people is even more intimate than the relationship between God and Israel. As we look back to Matthew and we look back to this parable and we look back to the wicked tenants, we come to understand the horror of the story. The horror of the story, the horror of the account in Isaiah chapter 5 is of a vineyard that is loved so intimately and responds with sour grapes. Now, again, there's just so much in both the Old and New Testaments that comes here. In a, in a review of biblical theology and in the flow of the, the biblical meta narrative, creation, fall, redemption, new creation, it's interesting how the vineyard continues as, as, a, as a key metaphor throughout all. And it's also interesting to note that the distinction between the fruit, first of all, you have a distinction between fruit and fruitlessness. Jesus will curse the fig tree that bears no fruit. 
But there's also a curse upon that which is sour fruit. You, you do not plant a vineyard. You do not care for the vineyard. You do not tenderly care for the vines. And this is a part of the intimacy, by the way, of a vineyard that is greater than the intimacy of, say, a garden. It is because the vine must be continually tended to. By the time a vineyard owner is ready for a harvest, he knows every one of these vines and he knows exactly how it has grown. He has had to tie it and support it. He knows exactly where the bud is. He knows exactly where the grapes will come. He knows exactly what he has every right to expect. But the grapes are sour. They taste like wild grapes. And by the way, that, just understand, wild is not merely a metaphor here. Wild means the grapes one would not expect from the vine that has been tended so well. Wild grapes are what happens when the vine is untended and unloved. That's the real pain here. That's the, that's the real divine judgment here. It's, it's that these grapes taste, act, live as if they have not been loved. Therefore, the outrage of the one who has loved these vines. But if you think it can't get any worse than Isaiah 5, you would be wrong. If the intimacy uh, uh, that is symbolized by the vine is even infinitely stronger in the New Testament than it was in the Old, so also is the horror of Matthew chapter 21 infinitely more horrifying even than the horror of Isaiah chapter 5. Jesus tells the parable of a man who planted a vineyard. He put a fence around. He does everything he should do. And you'll notice this is Isaiah 5. It's as if the same, the same account is being told. It tells you for one thing that the process of Making a vineyard and tending it hasn't changed much from Isaiah to Jesus. But in this case, even after he built the tower, and that's to, to guard the vineyard, he leases it out to tenants. And, and, and this is something also that was extremely common. So he, he's leased it to others. He is, uh, he's not going to personally care for the vines at this point. He's leaving it to others. And, and then, however, he is the owner of the vineyard, and is he who planted it so carefully, is he who, who so lovingly owned it and owns it now. And, and he, he sends his servant to go and collect what is his due. As you see there in verse 34, when the season for the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Now, we know that this was not a particularly uncommon occurrence. We, we know this because of the preaching of the prophets in the Old Testament. We know that there were those who would take a vineyard, they would take a piece of property without right, and they would deny what is due to the owner of the, the property, the owner of the field, the owner of the, of the farm, the owner, in this case, of the vineyard. But you'll notice the, the pattern here. The man who is, is owed what is his due from his vineyard, he sends his servants to those who are now tending the vineyard, and he, he demands what is rightfully his. And, and you'll notice the response is violent. It, it's, it's not just a denial, it's violent. They beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And, and the stoning in this sense is, is itself implying death, but it's a particularly, particularly violent death that means absolute rejection. Stoning is a process that takes time, premeditation, and perseverance to the end. This is abject hatred. This is calculated hatred. The, these tenants are responding to the vineyard owner with, with a kind of rebellion that goes beyond description. And, and as Jesus here speaks of three, and, and the one is beaten, and the one is killed, and the other is stoned, what, what is the picture here? Well, clearly, it is of God's people rejecting the prophets who've been sent to them. What happened to the prophets? What happened to the preachers? What, what, what did the children of Israel do when... when the vineyard owner sent his servants to the vineyard. 
Well, we know what they did. It happens a second time. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. So he sent a, 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 an he, he sent a team of three, but then he sends more, and they did it again. Look at the Old Testament and see if that isn't actually what we see. I mean, how many prophets do we have? How many prophets did Israel reject? So what happens next? One of the issues in every parable is that at some point the parable takes a turn and when that turn is taken you better watch very carefully. Think for example of the cycle of parables in Luke chapter 15, the parables of lostness and foundness and think of what is perhaps the most famous of the parables of Jesus which is the parable we know is the parable of the prodigal son. And, and then you say, where's the turning point in that? Is it, is it when the young man came to himself and, and, and said, there are servants to my father who are treated better than I. I will go back and be my father's slave. Is that the turning point? It is a turning point. It's not the turning point. The turning point in that parable is when it says, now the elder brother was in the field. Swerve. Okay, so some, something just happened there. Look for a swerve in the parables of Jesus. The way I put it this, is this way, is that the parables of Jesus need to be understood as hand grenades. Do I have your attention now? The parables of Jesus are like a hand grenade. Jesus begins by taking the hand grenade and putting it on the table and saying, listen, there's a, yeah, there's a hand grenade, let me tell you about it. Then at some point in the parable, he looks out at the audience, pulls the pin out of the grenade and says, let me continue. Here's where it continues. What will happen? We are told that they have killed his first emissary team. They have killed the second. And then you see in verse 37, finally he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. Now this is indeed the swerve. I'll send my son. Surely they will respect my son. Now, he had every right to respect, to expect that his servants would have been received and respected, not stoned and beaten and killed, and then even more, stoned and beaten and killed. When he sends his son, his son represents himself. It's one thing to send a servant. It's one thing to send an ambassador. It's one thing to send an agent or an emissary. It's another thing to send your son. The, the son represents the father in a way no emissary, no ambassador, no agent does. This is not someone who is representing this, the father. This is someone who is the father's son. When the son comes, he bears the authority of the father. And the, the father's assumption is as Jesus is telling the parable, that they will treat his son differently than they have treated the servants. But you know ahead of time, they are not going to treat the son differently than, than they, they treated the servants. Because you know what happened. You know what's coming. You know, yes, the triumphal entry took place where they hailed Jesus as a king. But you know that we are just days and hours from give us Barabbas. We're just days and hours from crucify him. So as you put it in the context, we recognize that this is at the very moment where Jesus is making clear, I know exactly what you are about to do to me. But I want you to know exactly to whom you are doing it. The judgment in this is horrifying. The tension is absolutely explosive. But of course, the parable's not over. Notice, notice the premeditation. Notice the rejection. N just think of John saying in the prologue to his gospel, he came unto his own, but his own received him not. F 
Finally, he sent a son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, we read this passage aloud, and we begin at verse 33 and continued through verse 46. That's what you have to do when you're making reference to a text, when you're preaching a text or teaching a text. You, you read that text. You can't read the entire Gospel of Matthew. You can't read the entire New Testament. You can't read the entire Bible. So anytime we are looking to a passage of Scripture, we're looking at a passage of Scripture, and we have to be very careful not to take it out of its context. There's something going on here. What's going on here is that Jesus is not just speaking to his disciples. Most importantly, this parable was not addressed to his disciples. His disciples are hearing it. We are his disciples. We desperately need it. He is speaking this parable to those who were confronting him about his authority, asking, by what authority do you do these things? Do you teach these things? Jesus said, I'm about to tell you by what authority you brood of vipers. And by the way, we both know you are about to kill me. But I'm going to tell you, I'm going to make it plain so that you're going to know exactly what you're doing. The premeditation, the horror of this, it's not just the rejection of service, this is the rejection of the Son. And, and, and you'll notice they know exactly what they're doing. That's what Jesus is saying to them. You know exactly what you're doing. It, the, these wicked tenants don't fail to recognize the Son as the Son. Here's what's really crucial. They recognize the Son as the Son. They actually know who he is. They say this is the heir. And so they say it's not that it's mistaken identity. They know exactly who he is. And they say let us kill him. And take this for ourselves. It's the true horror of what's going on here. Jesus is saying not of Israel corporately. But of the chief priests and the leaders of the people. He's saying, here's, here's what you're doing. You're not just out to kill me. You are out to make this kingdom yours. Now, wait just a minute. Wait just a minute. One of the issues we always have to confront is that when we are looking at the Gospels, for example, and, and we understand the calculations of sinful men to kill Jesus, we are tempted to say, okay, let's read this as history and let's treat it like an episode of law and order. Let's find those who are guilty and assign guilt. The problem is that, yes, the chief priests and the leaders of the people were the proximate guilty parties. But the true horror is we killed Jesus. It's sinful humanity who kills Jesus. Yes, these are the agents. And yes, they, they bear the responsibility. It's to them that Jesus is speaking. But Jesus isn't just speaking to them to understand the parables, to understand the gospel. To understand the gospels is to understand that Jesus is saying, this is sinful humanity on display. That's the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They killed the son. You notice also they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Where was Jesus crucified? Not inside Jerusalem, but outside the gates of the city. In, in every way, this parable helps us to tell us the horror, the calculated horror of what sinners do to Jesus. Now, in one sense, the parable is now over. If you're just thinking of the passage as a parable, that was the parable. But, of course, that's not all we read because this parable is a part of the conversation, the confrontation. It's a part of this context, and it continues because Jesus then asks a question. And this is where reading the text, just as we did aloud, you can miss what's happening here because Jesus asked the question, when, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? 
But Jesus isn't asking it hypothetically. He's not asking it as if someone's going to shout out the answer. He's asking those who had asked him, by what authority do you teach these things? By what authority do you do these things? He's asking the question of the chief priests and of the elders of the people. And after he told the parable, the parable in which the wicked tenants kill the son of the vineyard owner, they're tracking with him in the story, and then he says, what then will the vineyard owner do? Have you ever seen a trap snap so quickly? Look at how they answer him. They say, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Snap. They walked right into the trap. Jesus said, what do you think the owner of the vineyard's going to do with these criminals? But they were speaking about themselves. And they don't get it yet. You know, we'd like to think not only that we're the kind of people who would see and respect and receive and obey the truth when it's right before us, we'd also like to think we're the kind of people who would know when we'd just been had. We're the kind of people who would like to think we're the kind of people who if we are the bad guy in the story, we would have figured it out in the beginning. Or at least we would have figured it out by the end. But notice that Jesus continues. And when we talk about heightened tension, how's this for heightened tension? In verse 42, Jesus says, have you ever read in the scriptures? Okay, so I go into the preacher and say, you ever read the Bible? You go into the theologian and say, you ever think about God much? He, he, he's confronting those who just answered the question rightly by saying, oh, you know, you're kind of right there, but have you ever read the Bible? He goes back to Psalm 118, as we heard already this morning in worship. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What in the world does that mean? What does it mean that the the stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone. Well, let's consider what it means. Who would we ask? Who would we ask about this? Well, let's ask Peter. Peter in Acts chapter 4, verse 11, when he preaches, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Let's ask Peter. Peter knows the rightful interpretation of Psalm 118. He understands that in Christ is the fulfillment of Psalm 118. And he says there in that great sermon in the confrontation of Acts chapter 4, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected. And then he says rejected by you. That's how pointed Peter is. The builders which has become the cornerstone. What is the picture of the stone that has become the cornerstone? It, it, it's the stone that was rejected by the builders as unworthy of the building that is actually the one stone that holds everything together. It turns out that the whole building is about that one stone. The one stone that was rejected by the builders has now become the cornerstone. Ask Paul what this means in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, when he speaks of the household of God being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. Okay, now that's so glorious. That's one of the most important passages in the entire New Testament because it is one of the most important hinges for all of biblical theology. The apostle Paul says, you know what the gospel is? The gospel is the fulfillment of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles and the prophets are spoken together as one testimony. It's not the, the prophets and then the apostles. It's the apostles and the prophets together. It is one testimony of God's revealed truth, and the church is built upon that revealed truth. But it's not just the, the truth about Christ. It is Christ who is the cornerstone. So it turns out that the apostles and the prophets are stones. It turns out that the apostle Paul will say, we are all as Christians living stones. But the entire edifice is held together by the cornerstone. Ask Peter again. 
First Peter chapter 2, verse 7. He goes on to say, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What he's saying is, you now can't miss this. And by the way, this means that in the flow of biblical history, the church is the living evidence of the fact that Jesus is the cornerstone. How has the church existed? How has the church persevered? How does the church survive through two millennia? How has the church survived plague and pestilence and persecution? How has it survived the, the, the killing of so many Christians throughout history and the martyrdom of so many of the saints? How has it survived political oppression? How has it sur survived economic de deprivation? How has it survived? How has it survived spiritual and theological attacks? How has it survived? It is not because the stone hold themselves together, it is because the church is held together on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. When Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, he wasn't talking about Peter, he was talking about himself. It's because of Christ that the church exists and will exist and will be triumphant until he comes. So we ask, how are we to read Psalm 118? Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 21. Peter tells us in Acts chapter 4 verse 11. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20. Peter comes back and tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 7. The truth could not be more compellingly presented. The parable of the tenets. It's over as a parable, but it's not over as a text. It's not over as a confrontation. Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And then we also read, beginning in verse 43 and following, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Where does it come from? How are we to understand that? Remember, Jesus just asked them, you guys ever read the Bible? You remember the Bible? You remember those scrolls? You ever read the Scriptures? If you read the Scriptures, you'd know who I am, and, and you would know exactly what you're doing, and you would know, you vipers, by what authority I speak and do these things. This is my Father's house. But the words here are words of unusually powerful judgment. Jesus says in verse 43, I, will, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Taken away and then given. So it's a two-stage judgment. Taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Do you understand why the apostles following the, the imperative of Jesus make very clear that the church is a fruit bearing vine, or it is no church. Do you understand that the fruits that are the product of the gospel to the glory of God are the sign of the church? If you don't find fruit, you haven't found a vineyard. You haven't found the church. Jesus makes that clear, so clear in the gospel of John. Paul makes that so clear in his apostolic writings. Jesus here makes that clear because you'll notice the one thing he says about his church in, in, in distinction to that which is being rejected, he is speaking of the vineyard being given to a people producing its fruits. This is true of the church. Just think about this for a moment. This is, this is the entire ecclesiology of the church in, in one sense. In summary here, where you find the fruit of the gospel there's a church where there's no fruit of the gospel. I don't care what you call it. It's not a church. But it's not over then. In verse 44, Jesus says, remember, he had just cited Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. But then he goes on and says, just one verse later, in verse 44, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What's that? What is this about falling on a stone? What is it about the stone crushing him? This is the prophet Daniel. If you've read the scriptures, 
you're hearing Daniel. This is Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. Daniel writes, And in the days of those kings, the God of Israel will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver, and gold, a great God is made known to the king. What shall be after this? The dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. As you know the context, Daniel was interpreting the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel said, here's what it means. Your kingdom is going to be taken away, and it is going to be crushed. On what will it be crushed? It will be crushed on the reality of the one true living God. One of the major heresies of theological liberalism in the 19th and 20th centuries was the claim that Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, if you want to make the claim that Jesus never claimed to be God, you've got to say that Jesus never said what he says in Matthew chapter 21. Just taking one passage. Because Jesus, in a cycle of statements in this passage we've just been considering, says repeatedly, I'm the Son of God. He makes himself the Son of God in the narration of the parable, the Son the Father sent, whom the people should rightly respect but instead kill. He makes very clear that he is the son when he speaks of himself in the messianic testimony of Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. But then he goes to Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, and he says, let me tell you what's going to happen. The stone that you rejected that has become the cornerstone is going to crush you and break you in pieces. You share the gospel with someone. The gospel, good news. The good news of salvation. Evangelion. The good news of what God has done for us in Christ. The good news that salvation has come to God's house. The, the, the good news that sinners, by confessing with their lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and believing in their heart that God has raised him from the dead, shall be saved. The good news that in the miracle of the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, he put forth Christ as a propitiation in faith. The, the good news that in the, on the cross, those who come to Christ by faith, of them it is true that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, our sin is imputed to him. That is good news for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We love John 3.16. It is the central summary verse of the Bible. It's been the most translated verse in the entire Bible and it is because it is that distilled summary of the great good news of the fact that all who believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But what about those who do not believe? They will be crushed and broken to pieces. Let's just say that's not a prosperity theology. Let's just say that evidently it is necessary to the gospel. Let's just say that in the context in which Jesus, as he is headed to the cross, is confronted about his own authority. He says, I want to tell you about this authority. It's an authority that saves those who believe and will crush and break to pieces those who deny We'd like to be, or like to think that we're the people, the kind of people who would see the truth when it's right before our eyes. We'd like to think we're the kind of people who'd weigh the evidence and, and with the process of rationality not miss the truth. We'd like to think we're the kind of people who would prefer the truth to the lie. But we're not actually that kind of people. Nor were the chief priests and the elders of the people Look what happens, verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, that meant specifically the two parables, the parable of the two sons and then the parable of the tenants. When, when they heard the parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. And though they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. They perceived that he was talking about them. 
I'll just ask you a quick question. Do you perceive that he's talking about you? Do I perceive that he's talking about me? Let me answer the question for you. He's talking about you. When the chief priests and the leaders of the people, the elders, heard the parables and they said, we think he's talking about us, they were right. But he's really talking about all sinners. We have no hope. We have no hope at all from being crushed and broken to pieces except that by grace we come to see the truth. We come to understand our situation. We come to see ourselves as infinitely separated from a holy and righteous God before whom we have no claim. We are the wicked vineyard tenants. Salvation comes only by grace. And it's all of grace because we're not actually the kind of people who would see the truth and just naturally embrace it. We're the people who confronted with the truth would naturally rationalize it away or think it for someone else or postpone it for future consideration. Jesus says, broken to pieces, crushed. But he also says, come to me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Salvation comes to all those who come to the sure and rightful knowledge that we are sinners and there is no hope but a Savior. And the one who speaks, who is the cornerstone, is the Savior. The Savior who redeems. Also, the judgment that will crush and break to pieces. The question is, is he talking about you? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the shocking reality of your word. Father, one of the ways you show us you love us is by giving us through the teaching of Jesus and through the witness of the apostles the knowledge of this kind of word that Jesus spoke because we will die without it. Father, thank you for shocking us in this parable. Thank you for shocking your redeemed people into a renewed and deeper understanding of what it means for Christ to be the chief cornerstone and for the gospel to be of grace, all of grace. Father, if there be those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, may they come to know his sweet mercy and trusting in him believe and believing be saved. And Father, may we understand what's at stake for it's either being saved by the blood of the Lamb or crushed by the judgment that is to come. Father, we lay all of this in your hands to your glory forevermore as Christ reigns in his church. Amen. Let's respond.